Amen. Thank you, Howard. Happy New Year. Got me some new glasses for the new year. I'm pretty pumped. Uh, wait, this is not them. Um, <laughs> thank you, Chris. These are Chris's. <clears throat> A couple other things. Um, Sam Harless, Sam, young Sam Harless over here is the technical director for Klein High School's play performance of Beauty and the Beast. I've been working out a lot this year. <laughs> By the way, when I put those glasses on for Lewis, the goofy ones that Chris has, he said, I like those better than your others. Um, anyway, <clears throat> we uh, uh, Beauty and the Beast will be uh, showing on January 27th. 28th, 29th at 7 o'clock, February 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 7th at 7 o'clock, the Klein High School Theater Department. If you, uh, like us, uh, have uh, young children, uh, great play. It's a wonderful play. Um, next, actually, this is something I have to talk to Becky about. Oh, thanks, Philip. Let's see if I can tear this one off. <laughs> now, um, the... Uh, uh, I've got a real hankering to do something in this class. I don't know about you, but I grew up in the Church of Christ. And one of the things that at the time we hated, but as you get distance, you find the things you don't like become warm in your heart and you miss them. One of the things that we, we, we never cared that much for growing up was the fact that we sang uh, a cappella in the Church of Christ. And we always thought that was rather humdrum and boring and, and were not real pumped about it. Uh, but now that we get old enough to where we never do it anymore, we look back nostalgically and think, you know, that was kind of cool because we sang in four-part harmony and when you were brought up in the Church of Christ, I mean, you had to sing in harmony or it, it was really bad. So, I mean, everybody sang, everybody sang in harmony and there are some old hymns that were just absolutely wonderful and near and dear to my heart as I get older, though at the time I thought they were um, rather humdrum. Um, anyway, uh, uh, it is uh, on my mind to try and put together one of our socials, and I'll get Christy Duncan on this and, and obviously coordinating with Becky, but maybe we can even have it at our home or something, but put together a social that is basically centered around getting out a bunch of hymnals with the old songs that have all the parts in them and singing them for 30, 45 minutes. And uh, uh, okay, that's good. That means y'all might come. <laughs> Because if it's just me and Becky, the four-part harmony, it's only half there. And the halves that are there are not there very strongly. All right, let's get to class. Those of you who may be new, uh, Becky's given a good introduction. We're actually going through the book of Acts right now. But in the process of going through the book of Acts, we're stopping where Paul wrote various letters to look at those letters so we can consider what he wrote in the time frame in which he wrote it. So, for example, today we're stopping and looking at 1 Thessalonians. Next week we'll look at 2 Thessalonians. Um, it's interesting to me when you read the letter of Thessalonians in this context to recognize that that church, those people had been Christians for at most two years probably when Paul wrote it. 
And most likely less than that. We tend to read these letters and think, oh, these were, you know, churches of long... No, this two-year Christians, and that's about it. None of the people had really been brought up in the church because the church had only been there for a couple of years. So it's an exciting thing for us to do. As we look at the class, Mike and Marty Cherry uh, came up uh, uh, right before the new year and sat down with me very politely and gently and gave me a swift kick in the back and told me um, that I need to get this stuff put together. And they volunteered to do it, not just told me to do it. And so with their help, we're trying to put together right now a CD that will have the Old Testament lessons in, in toto and get all of them put back together in a good form where because this has kind of morphed as we've gone along and figured out what works and what doesn't. But we'll put together in a good form the Old Testament lessons, hopefully the PowerPoints as well, and hopefully even put together into a CD form, uh, which Steve and some others have been asking for, of the, the class lessons, which Mike and others so dutifully record. So if that's of any use to you, um, we'll try and do that. We'll make that available. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, obviously, this stuff uh, uh, is available uh, at, at absolutely no cost. Um, uh, and uh, we'll make that available to you. Um, any other house cleaning before we get to class? No. Okay. Background for the class. It's taken two years to get to Thessalonica. Not just the two years it took Paul to write it from the time he was there, but actually the two years it's taken us to get there because we started about two years ago. But now we are here to deal with Thessalonians. It is also two in the sense that it was Paul's second missionary journey where the church was started. So just to keep us up in review, if we go back to the... Um, oh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and sometimes Luke were on this missionary journey. Luke having written Acts. This is important because when we think of the biblical greats, we put Paul down as a New Testament big guy, right? Okay, And then usually we put Timothy next as the next big Testament guy, right? Probably not at the time. It would have been Silas next. Silas actually co-taught with Paul and was a lot more active. Timothy was kind of like the uh, uh, behind-the-scenes guy who helped out so much. But Silas was the one who was teaching with Paul more so. So Paul puts Silas there. The reason we jump, leapfrog Timothy in front is because Paul wrote Timothy two letters, First and Second Timothy. So Timothy's a name that we're much more familiar with. But Paul, Silas, and Timothy are on this missionary journey. Timothy got picked up in Derby after the journey started. Luke joined for a little of the journey and then dropped back out. The journey, Paul started from Antioch. He went through Tarsus this way over to Derby and Lystra, and that's where he picked up Timothy. Then he kept on going up to Troas, and from Troas took the boat, and that's where Luke, by the way, joined. And they went over, they landed in Neapolis, and went over to Philippi which is the Philippian church, which Damon was talking about the Philippian letter. That letter doesn't get written for some time yet, but the church was actually formed here um, in this second missionary journey around 50 A.D., 49 probably A.D. From there, the folks walked over to Thessalonica. <clears throat> Thessalonica is, in fact, the home of the Thessalonian church. They were Thessalonians that lived in Thessalonica, like we are Houstonians who live in Houstonica. Um, uh, the, uh, um, 
Paul's experience in Thessalonica was wonderful in some ways. We'll look at it in a bit more depth. From there, though, Paul went to Berea and from Berea down to Athens over to Corinth. In Corinth, Paul stayed for about a year and a half. It was while in Corinth, Paul writes the letter back to the Thessalonians, back to the church at Thessalonica. The letter itself is one of two Thessalonian letters. And in my effort to make sure we're all biblically literate, there is still this perplexing question that I have no answer for beyond what people conjecture. There's just no good written answer. And no, Bob, I've not yet answered your question of who came up with the term New Testament. Um, I'm still working on that one too. I'm still betting it's Jerome, but I haven't gone back uh, uh, to do that research yet, but I will. One of the issues that I have researched that scholars write about is why are the letters in the order that they're in? Who decided, if you look, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right, the Gospels, and then you've got Acts, and then you've got the letters to the churches. Romans, we haven't even touched that yet. First and second Corinthians, we haven't touched those. Galatians, we did that. Ephesians, we haven't done. Philippians, we haven't done. Colossians, we haven't done. We're hitting the Thessalonian letters today. Why are they in that order? Well, there are different theories, though no one knows for certain. One of the theories is, is that they're in order of descending length. In other words, Romans is the biggest letter Paul wrote to the churches, followed by 1 Corinthians, followed by 2 Corinthians, followed by Galatians, followed by Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and, and they go like that. Another theory is, is at the time the canon was put together, or the Bible was put together in the early church, they, they put those letters in order of the importance of the church itself. Rome had the most important church, so it was first. Corinth had the second most important church, so those letters came next. Uh, um, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians. Galatia had the, you know, and Ephesians, although the Galatian churches were actually a collection of churches, if you recall that class, um, those classes. I, I think it's probably the former instead of the latter. They put the big ones first and they got to the smaller ones, but I have no basis for believing that. But I will tell you this, it is not chronological, okay? The letters are not in chronological order in our Bible. So when we say 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, our tendency, or at least mine growing up, was always to think 1st Thessalonians was written first and 2nd Thessalonians was written second. Scholars don't necessarily agree on that. There's good reason to think it's actually the flip-flop. So I'm going to give you a test. It's your biblical literacy test. Order issues, we call this. Which one came first, the chicken or the egg? First or second Thessalonians. Here is your quiz. No fair looking at your sheets and cheating. Paul writes in one of these letters, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions. I'm a lawyer. I started to say prosecutions. It's not there, is it? We boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. You suffered the same things those churches suffered. Talking about the churches in Jerusalem. From the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus. Now you'll notice a difference there. You'll notice this one talks about persecutions and trials you are enduring. Whereas the other quote talks about something that happened in the past. Something you suffered. So, question. 
is, <laughs> I worked hard on that, is this one first or is this one first? You have a chance to think. You don't have to say it out loud. You can, if you want to, don't want to be embarrassed. It's like the phone thing at the Houston Rockets game. Which one has singular wireless after they do the shell game? Which one is first? You would think that the one where they're still suffering was first and the one where he talks about what happened before when they did suffer was second, wouldn't you? That's why a lot of scholars, one of the main reasons a lot of scholars believe that, whoops, 2 Thessalonians was actually written first. Because it's 2 Thessalonians, the persecutions and the suffering is going on at the time of the letter. In 1 Thessalonians, it's already happened. So a lot of scholars believe that perhaps Paul wrote the first Th- uh, wrote 2 Thessalonians as his first letter and actually sent it with Timothy to the church. And then Timothy came back from the church to see Paul in Corinth and gave a new report to Paul, and that's when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. We don't know for certain, but those are the reasons why. At least we should not read these letters thinking necessarily that 1 Thessalonians came first, and then 2 Thessalonians came. If you do that, it doesn't always make sense when you put the letters together. So recognize that that we don't know for certain. Now, what do we know about the Thessalonian church? Whenever we're reading a letter like this, we need to make sure we're on all fours with this church. When Paul, Silas... And probably Timothy. Acts is unclear whether Timothy made the early journey or not because Paul and Silas were the two doing most of the talking. Timothy was the uh, 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 behind-the-scenes guy. Okay? When Paul and Timothy go to Thessalonica, the first three Sabbaths, Friday night to Saturday night, they spend in the synagogue talking to the Jews and the Greek God-fearers that would attend synagogue. After those three weeks, they stayed in Thessalonica for some time period. We don't know how long because uh, Luke doesn't tell us. But for at least three weeks, they spoke to the Jews. During this time, there were some conversions. We learn in Acts 17 that there were some Jews. There were a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Interesting language that Luke used. Not a few prominent women... The women would not be prominent in the sense of themselves being significant community figures as leaders. The community leaders were men. Um, It was a chauvinistic society at the time. and, And if these were prominent women, a large number, not a few, a large number of prominent women, that means they were married to wealthy men or influential men. So by and large, the church is made up according to Acts 17, in the initial conversions that Paul and Silas are there for, the church is made up of some Jews, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few, but even more prominent women. Keep it in your brain. There is a Jewish jealous reaction to Paul. Paul spent, you remember, his first three weeks in the synagogue and then longer time talking to the the community at large. You can just see the reaction of the Jewish synagogue when Paul goes in there and says, hey, let me teach you about our faith. Let me teach you what the Old Testament, uh, or at the time they would have called it their scriptures, their Torah, their Tanakh. Let me teach you what the scriptures say about our Messiah. And then let me give you the data about the Messiah because he came in Jerusalem and you all just don't know it because you're stuck up here in Thessalonica. But he's come, he's already died for our sins, he's been resurrected. So our Jewish faith says, boom, and he delivers the gospel message. 
Now the Jews, a few of them believe. But they're not going to give over the keys to the synagogue to Paul and say, okay, now we will be the synagogue of Jesus Christ. So a few believe, and then after those three weeks, Paul takes his message out and starts going to the God-fearing Greeks. They could have been also in the synagogue, but at least he's appealing to them. And then not a few uh, prominent women, and they start embracing this message. And can't you see this small Jewish synagogue starting to get upset that, first of all, Paul peels away some of their members? And then the God-fearing Greeks that would come to synagogue or at least acknowledge the Lord... A whole bunch of them are starting to follow this guy. And now some of the Lord High Muckety Muck women in the community are starting to follow him as well. And the jealousy descends on that Jewish synagogue, uh, we, we read in Acts. And the Jewish synagogue reaches out and tries to get the, the government officials there. They were called polytarchs in, uh, 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 in Thessalonica. Tries to get the polytarchs to basically arrest Paul and Silas. They go to get Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas can't be found. So instead they arrest this Christian named Jason and make him post bond, basically saying, hey, if there's any unrowdiness or unrest because of this Paul guy, your neck's on the line. And so the church takes Paul and Silas and in the middle of the night, they send them away to Berea. And Paul and Silas get whisked out in the middle of the night. Now, if you don't know what's going on, you're a church member and you didn't show up last Sunday when DeMond announces his retirement. This is not where you've got till April to find out. You go to church the next time and all of a sudden, where's Paul or Demond? And boom, they're gone. In the middle of the night, they left. You've got a large number of God-fearing Greeks. You've got some Jews. You've got not a few prominent women. And they're wondering, ah, they left. Why'd they leave? Well, here's what happened. And the word gets out. We know this from reading the Acts story. But it's going to make a lot of the Thessalonian letter make sense to us when we keep it fresh in our brain as we go through uh, uh, this. The dead of the night exit uh, uh, is what happened. Paul and Timothy and Silas go to Berea. In Berea, they're there for a while and things are going real good till some of the Jews in Thessalonica find out they're in Berea and the Jews from Thessalonica make a trip to Berea to try and get them kicked out of there. And that's when they go down to Athens. And Paul stays in Athens alone, sends Timothy. At some point, Timothy joins Paul in Athens. But Paul says to Timothy, you know, we left in the dead of the night, Thessalonica. And I don't know how things are going there, and I got to know. So you got to go back. And Timothy goes back to Thessalonica to check on things. Some believe he took with him what we now call 2 Thessalonians, that letter from Paul. We don't know. But Timothy goes back. Paul, meanwhile, finishes up in Athens. Paul goes over to Corinth. And while Paul's in Corinth, Timothy returns and gives a report of what was going on at the Thessalonican church. It is this return of Timothy that caused Paul to write 1 Thessalonians. We read in 3.6, Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. Paul says, I was worried that Satan, the tempter, would come in and I had such little time with you and I was ripped away in the middle of the night and I was worried about the result on your faith. And so I had to send Timothy back. I wanted to come back myself. I've tried to come back. I'm not able to. Circumstances still won't allow me to come back. I'll be doing more harm than good. So I sent Timothy and the report he's brought back has just lifted my spirits and, and, you know, isn't it wonderful? It's like Damon was saying this morning. 
God's not just in heaven. There's a theo- there are theological terms for this, and DeMond does such a wonderful job at, at, at teaching theological concepts in everyday language. But the, the transcendence of God and yet the imminence of God are the theological terms you would have. God is beyond us. And yet the paradox is God is with us. And both are true statements. We can truly speak of the God who is in heaven, yet we can truly speak of the God who is in all of us, believers, the God who is everywhere. God is as far away as far can be, and yet God is within the very molecule you look at, or that molecule would disintegrate and have no substance. So, so uh, when we think of it that way, Paul knows this. It should not strike Paul as surprising that Paul left the church, but it wasn't really Paul's church, it was God's. So while Paul left, who stayed? God. And the church was doing fine, thank you very much. Appreciate your worry, Paul, but the Holy Spirit's at work here. And frankly, he does fine without you. So Paul, I'm sure, was encouraged. He had great joy, he says, when he got that report from Timothy. If we look at this letter that he wrote when Timothy returned, there are three core divisions that at least that, that I've put it into for purposes of this class. I'm sure there are thousands of different people who can divide it thousands of different ways, but these are very natural ways to divide the letter up. The first chapter, Paul deals with his thanksgiving for the Thessalonians themselves, and he talks about how thankful he is. The second and third chapter, Paul discusses the interactions he had had with the Thessalonians while he was there. And then the fourth and fifth chapters, Paul gives them instructions on how they ought to be living. Let's break down these divisions. We'll go through the letter uh, uh, and look at each one briefly. Chapter 1, Thanksgiving. Paul starts out with a prayer giving thanks to God for the Thessalonians. He tells the Thessalonians he's thankful for them. Hold on, let me find it. That's in this Bible too. Okay. See, okay. Yeah, we always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. Paul, in the process, though, does something that's kind of cool. Um, Paul weaves in some incredible theology in this prayer. If you don't pause to look at it, you read right by it. But if you pause to look at it, this is, this is, in, this is Paul. I mean, he weaves some, uh, some profound lessons that could be themselves the subject of a 10-week series never getting redundant. In one verse, if you look at the prayer, he says, we continually, this is verse 4, I believe, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Very profound theology laced within this prayer and just general introduction from Paul to the letter. When Paul talks about your work produced by faith, or your labor prompted by love, or your endurance inspired by hope, he's talking about things that receive great treatment throughout the Bible and are worthy of us stopping for just a moment. Part of being biblically literate with 1 Thessalonians is not just the background knowledge and a division of the book, but it's knowing this verse. This is one of the most important verses, in my opinion, uh, in terms of 1 Thessalonians and what it, it says about life for me. 
Um, um, so, so I pause here for a moment and we look at it. First of all, that's one three. Work produced by faith. That's the first thing Paul's thankful of. That is so very different than the, the, the legalism that many churches of Christianity have had over the ages. And I'm sure anybody here ever been to a legalistic church? Let me explain legalism. Legalism means God loves you based on how good you are. Legalism says you want God's grace, He gives it to you freely as long as you earn it. Legalism says you want to get to heaven, here's your job and what you have to do to work your way there. One, two, three, four, five. Legalism, now sometimes it's cloaked, because there are some Bible verses that are pretty strong against legalism. I've fought with one legalist for 30 years. I'm still trying to convert him, and I'm working hard. But uh, uh, he says this to me one day. Well, I won't even use him. I'll tell you about one of my professors in school. I, was, uh, I took the a class called James and Jude. I don't know why they group those two letters together. They have like squat in common, except they both start with J. But James and Jude was the class. And this professor was a legalist. He just was. And I didn't want to take him. I didn't have a choice. He was the only one teaching James and Jude, and I had to take James and Jude. He said to me, his, his view was one where you will not go to heaven unless you get baptized And you have to get baptized in the right way at the right time with the right mentality and the right theology behind it. And he said to us the following. I I challenged him in class. I said, um, Professor, I I shouldn't use his name, Choate. Professor Choate. It's a true story. I can use his name. I'm I'm a lawyer. Truth's a defense. Um, Professor Choate. I said, isn't that kind of legalistic to say that you have to be baptized? I mean, you've turned baptism into a work to earn God's favor. He said, no, baptism is not a work. It's just something you have to do to get your salvation. (laughs) Paul makes it clear he's thankful for the work that's been produced by the faith. There's no inherent value in being baptized. Baptism without faith is called swimming. (laughs) There is no inherent value in praying without faith. Prayer without faith is called talking to yourself. There is no inherent value in Coming to church without faith. Coming to church without faith is a social club. What matters is work produced by faith. It's the faith that makes it important. And that little nugget's just tucked in there. But it's not alone. And by the way, Paul says this differently in Ephesians, and I'm going to skip it today Uh, without going through a lot of detail, because we'll get it when we get to Ephesians. But he says it's faith that saves us. And we're saved or created, born again in Christ Jesus, to do good works. It's the result of the faith. 
God puts the faith there and we have the faith. The reason for the faith, salvation in Christ, is the good works that follow. The works come from faith. Now, his next statement. Your labor prompted by love. Now, this was not... The Greek word for labor here is not one that you women out there need to be thinking. Um, it's not that kind of labor. Okay? There were a few, not a few prominent women, but he's not talking about childbirth here. He's talking about hard work. He's talking about the sweat of the brow. He's, it's, it's like work outside on a hot summer day in Houston with humidity. It's sweating for the Lord. And the sweating for the labor. See that? <laughs> Talk about timing. Just a little bit off. Um, the labor, the labor is prompted, Paul says, by love. Now think about this. Think about this. Just follow the Bible verses that I put together here for you. This is love for God. 1 John, to obey His commands. You want to know if you love God? Are you living for Him? Are you doing what He says? My kids probably, I I grew up, I have, uh, well, sort of. No, we, you know, we, we grow up, hopefully. And I can remember things my parents said that just drove me crazy. And I've resolved I'm never going to use those with my kids. Although a number of them have come in handy and I've adopted them anyway. Um, There are some things my parents said that have molded and sculpted me and made me who I am that I love and appreciate so much that I try to pass on to my kids. Um, But I say some things that I have no doubt my kids just say, oh, this just drives us crazy. Where does dad get this little phrase from? I will never say this to my kids. And I think this may be one of them. When my kids are in active rebellion and disobedience, which happens uh, once, an hour. No, um, when, when my kids are, I have great kids, but when they are in active rebellion or disobedience, one of my comments is, you know, I expect different from you, if nothing else, out of love and honor and respect for me and Becky. To, 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 to go off and do this is to dishonor us. Or it's to step out of love. Love prompting labor. A willingness to sweat. We know we love God when we're willing to do for Him what He wants us to. We obey His commands. Jesus said it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. See, John didn't just come up with a good idea when he wrote First John. He was there when Jesus said it the first time. It goes further. Why do we love God? Because He first loved us. How do we know He first loved us? He gave Himself for us. Greater love has no man than to give His life for a friend, Jesus said, again in John. Um, So this is a chain. Our labor is prompted by love, but the love we have comes because He loved us first. And we know He loved us first because He died for us. So the fact that Jesus Christ died for you And the fact that Jesus Christ died for me shows an immeasurable love from God. And the response in our heart should be to love Him back. How incredible to love Him. And if that is our response and we have that love, then that's what causes us to sweat for the Lord. 
And it's the fact that they had this labor prompted by love that caused Paul to rejoice. Another little nugget just tucked in. Next nugget. Your endurance inspired by hope. I love this. I love this. We had a chance to spend some time with Ann and Bill Young last night. And Ann was saying some things that reminded me of this. Of how important it is for us to remember to endure. To keep going. There comes a time, maybe, oh, it's easy to say there comes a time in everybody's life when the heavens, there comes a time in everybody's week, maybe in your day, where you're going through stuff, you're just not, re- I mean, if it's on the shelf, it's not what you'd have picked to take home with you. I think I'll have that hassle this week. I think I'll, oh, troubles? I'd love some. You know, unless you're, I can never keep track of who's a sadist and who's a masochist, but unless, like, you're one or the other that just wants to walk through trouble all of your life, you you, you tend to stay away from them. Well, what keeps you going in the midst of your trouble? What keeps you going in the midst of the hassles? What keeps you going in the midst of of your difficulties? What keeps you going when you don't want to be going? Well, you want to just say, time out, stop the world, I want to get off. You know, what is it that keeps you going? For the Christians, for the Thessalonians, the attitude that Paul was thankful for was an endurance that was inspired by hope. Hope in the Lord Jesus. Hope, as we discussed in an earlier class, uh, in Acts, I think. If you go back to your Acts paperwork, you'll find the references. Hope, el peace in the Greek, that talks about a confident expectation. Not a, gee, I hope to win the lottery, but a confident, I expect it will be there. We can confidently expect Jesus Christ holds us in the palm of His hand. We can confidently expect, as, as, Paul, as uh, Damond said this morning, it's not just a promise, it's a fact. He's with us. And that gives us the endurance to push through whatever it is we need to push through. This world is not the end. There is a life after this world that actually is so much grander, it makes what we're going through squalid. And it's that confident expectation that Jesus Christ is there that inspires us and gives us our endurance, our ability to push through. We don't have the ability to push through absent the Lord Jesus. You don't don't ever push through in your life because of confidence in who you are. Don't ever push through and handle the hassles in your life because you got enough money you can do it or because you're smart enough, or because you're clever enough, or because you're witty enough, or because you're popular enough, or because you look good enough, or because you look bad enough, you can go under the radar screen. (laughs) The endurance that allows you to push through life's difficulties, if it's really going to be quality and really allow you to do it, has to be a confident expectation that the Lord Jesus is there with you and that He's on the other side waiting at the end. Otherwise, how can you face half of what's going on in the world? You can't. Paul says something to Timothy that I love. Paul says, uh, 1 Timothy 1.12, I know who... Whom? Sorry, bad grammar. I know whom... I have believed. 
And I am convinced that he's able to guard that which I've entrusted to him for that day. Paul doesn't say, I know what I've believed. My doctrine's good enough to get me through. Paul doesn't say, I know what I've believed. My religious system is good enough to get me through. Paul says, I know whom I've believed. I know Jesus Christ, and I know he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. And that's the hope. That's the confident expectation. So I would ask you these questions. And um, we, we uh, will probably stop the lesson here in just a moment. And these will be our points for home. Uh, and I'll finish this lesson next week. But I would ask you these questions. Number one, why should you do work? You've got a chance in front of you to do something um, um, out of line. You've got a chance to tell a lie. Now, some people, I'm telling you, Louis Miori and lie, the only thing those two have in common is L. Because Lewis, he's one of these people who the truth is the truth and the two never mix. And, and, and you don't lie, you don't tell big lies, you don't tell little lies, you don't lie at all. You tell the truth. And I don't think he could lie if he wanted to. Now, he's got other huge problems, so I'm not holding him up as a saint. That just happens to be one of his strengths. I'm almost the exact opposite, and no, this is not why I became a lawyer. It is so easy for me to drift into amorphous truth. It is so easy. It is a struggle I've had all of my life. Because it is so easy for me to say something that just seems to work and fit. Instead of be accurate. And I can remember struggling with this as a kid. I can remember getting caught. I can remember getting away with it. But I'm 44 years old. And if I don't keep up my guard, it's still something very easy for me to fall into. It is. It's one reason Dr. Bob and I are so dangerous together. Bob's like me. <laughs> Truth is a very fluid substance sometimes. <laughs> what is it? What do you need? <laughs> and that's not a good thing, right? That's not a good thing. But why should I work at being honest? Why should I sometimes, when I open my mouth and for some reason beyond me, something comes out that's just not quite accurate? Why do I have to say, time out? I don't know why I just said that, but that's not what I need to be saying. That's not what I meant. That's not, that's not the truth. Here it is. I've actually had to do that before. I've had to say, okay, uh, time out. I just, words just came out of here and I don't know where they came from. They came from that part of the brain that's imagination instead of record keeping. Um, but why is it important? Why is it important? I just say, time out, I'm going to be a truthful person. Because I love the Lord Jesus Christ and He's the way, the truth, and the life. And He wants me to be. And I want to be doing exactly what He wants me doing in this world because my purpose in living here is not just to have a good time. My purpose in living here right now is to serve my Lord and Savior till He brings me home and to do the good works He set out for me. And if I think I'm going to be doing His good works telling lies, then, then I've told myself a big whopper. 
the reason our, our lives are important and that it's important that we do what's right is because we're at part of a much bigger scheme. And we, you know, put me in, coach, I can play. When the coach says, okay, go in, you're the point guard, bring the ball down, make good sharp passes, I don't want any turnovers. The response isn't going to be, oh, forget that, I'm going in to post up. I'm going to play low post. You know, if the coach tells you to do something, you do it because you're part of the team and that's your purpose. When the Lord says to you, this is the way I want you to do it and I want you to do this because you're doing my work. You are part of my job. I get so upset when I watch TV shows and movies where people are told, don't do this. And you know they're not supposed to do it and you see them doing it anyway. Like they've got some great... And you know that those are the people who are going to get killed. It just always happens. And those are the, you don't do that. You know not to do that. They told you not to do that and you're doing it anyway. And you, oh, you've got a great motivation and you've got a great heart and all the rest. But you'll die. You will be the one who dies in this episode because you didn't follow the rules. You know, God's not out to kill you, but he's out to, make, to, to, to use you to do his works. And if you believe that and you have faith in that, then let that faith give you works. Let that be the reason you hold yourself accountable. Let that be the reason you work hard for the Lord. To find what His will is for you, for your family, for your job, for your community, and for your heart. So you can have that peace that you're in the middle of His will. So that come what may, tsunami away, your hope is built on Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that will rock that foundation. So why do you work? Because Jesus Christ died for you and you've got faith in that and faith in what's going on. Why do you labor? Because of the love he had for you and your love for him. And why do you hope? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's not mine, that's his. Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. And that's the Jesus who holds you in his hand, says, I'll walk with you everywhere. And I'm coming back to get you at the end of time. And you will live with me forever. That's, that's, that's a good hope. we got a lot of this letter to get through, but we'll do it at another time. Let's end with prayer, please. God, we thank you so much for this morning. And we thank you so much for the way that you minister to us in your word. Thank you for these wonderful nuggets that just get tucked away in, in Paul's letters here and there and a chance to come together and study them. Lord, I thank you for everyone here. I pray your blessings on everyone here. And uh, it is my prayer that we will all this week, today, find ourselves working out of our faith to you. Lord, may we labor for you who we love. Grow your love deeper in our hearts. Grow greater conviction in us of how much you love us. So we reciprocate that love. And Lord, it is my prayer that you'll give everyone who needs hope everyone who's facing difficulties right now, that you will give them the endurance that comes from your son, Jesus, in whom we pray, amen.